morning, everyone. Lovely to be here. Uh, lovely to share with you a little bit more from God's Word. And afterwards, during the brown bag lunch, I'll tell you a little bit more about Yol. That's Yol in Ireland, uh, the town called Yol. And uh, yeah, it's uh, just been lovely to be sharing with you. And uh, I think most of you are probably here normally, and some of you might have come along to, to witness a giant leprechaun in real life. But uh, whatever the reason, it's, it's lovely to be here and lovely to, to sing and, and to praise God. Uh, the message I'm going to share with you this morning is from Acts chapter 11. And uh, this is a message that I quite often give when I'm in deputation. When I first mentioned deputation, somebody thought, What's it? is that like to become a sheriff or have I got to have to go to a court case or what it is? It, but I'm from the north of Ireland and Northern Ireland and, and I'm working down the very south of Ireland. And so there's a little bit of a cultural difference, and I would describe the North that it's sectarian, so it hasn't even evolved as a society to the point where it's become racist yet. It's still working on sectarianism. Uh, when I go up North to visit, um, I always have to do a lot of one-arm press-ups to get ready for the national pastime of stone-throwing. But uh, Acts chapter 11 is, is very much a chapter about cultural differences and relationship through mission and how... Christ and the gospel transcends all of those things. And I'm not trying to speak into the culture in Texas. I don't know enough about that. I'm not going to be as arrogant as to do that. Um, but certainly, when I think about Northern Ireland, when we think about the New Testament, there are so many things that are even bigger than, than all different cultures and just are, are universal across the globe, things that we struggle with. So we're going to look at Acts chapter 11, and I'm going to read it together with us now. <clears throat> Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, had also received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it all to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If God then gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles God has granted repentance that leads to life. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews. 
But there were some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Greeks also, the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came and saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many of people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. Amen. Well, looking at chapter 11, clearly the first half of chapter 11 is, is basically Peter retelling the events from chapter 10. There's a, there's a good bit of repetition between chapter 10 and chapter 11 because Peter has to go through the experience. He struggles coming to terms with it himself. Then he has to relay the events to his friends and the church back in Jerusalem. Um, now, I'm not going to recount all of the details uh, in the first half of the chapter blow by blow, but hopefully, if you're not familiar with the account, you'll pick it up as we go. But I'm going to look at three points in this chapter. And the first one is that Jerusalem, Jewish Jerusalem, acknowledges the Gentiles. They accept the Gentiles in verses 1 to 18. They accept the, the non-Jews. Then secondly, in verses 19 to 21, Antioch, a non-Jewish city, receives the gospel. And then thirdly, in verses 22 to 30, there's this relationship through mission. Now in chapter 10, Peter's prejudices were challenged as he witnessed these Gentiles, these non-Jews, being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and praising God. He saw this vision of the, the sheet which was filled with all sorts of animals being lowered, and animals which were forbidden by Jews to eat. They were unclean food. And he heard this voice from heaven saying God that God had made all things clean and that he was now free to eat. Now Peter understood that just then as the food was clean, since God was sending him to this non-Jewish man Cornelius, then this would no longer be the kind of dinner party that would make him unclean. But it was still a shock to him to witness these non-Jews, Cornelius, his friends and his relatives, accepting Christ as Lord and receiving forgiveness and being filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking in tongues and praising God. Uh, a number of years ago, I lived in Dublin and I shared a flat with three Italian guys and they wanted to learn English, but I speak in an accent that sounds like a, a little bit of a mixture between Shrek and Conor McGregor. So they didn't want me to talk in my normal voice. So one guy, Emiliano from uh, Sicily, a real gangster, well, not really, but yeah, he, he said to me, I want you to speak in Queen's English so that when I speak, I sound like perfect English. I want you to speak perfectly so that I can learn how to speak. And I was like, no way, I'm not going to do that. No chance. But I also learned a few Italian words from them. They're not the kind of words that I'd ever want to repeat. Um, because the reality is, when somebody speaks, and they speak from their heart, 
something that's really deep and meaningful, they'll speak in their mother tongue, won't they? Whether it's cursing or blessing. And as Peter experiences these, these um, the Italian cohort, um, Cornelius and his friends, praising God and speaking in their own native tongue, he knows that this is something that God has done for them in the deepest level of their hearts. God has done a miracle. He is the God of them as well as the God of us. Now, considering the reaction of Peter and his companions at the end of chapter 10 then, and their shock and surprise, it's hardly surprising that the rest of the Jewish Christian church back in Jerusalem weren't so comfortable with the news that Peter had been visiting and dining with these non-Jews, these uncircumcised fellows. It was not that much different from the accusation of fraternizing with the enemy. We don't know what exactly they were eating. Uh, I, don't, I doubt it was probably deep-fried copperhead snake. Uh, it probably also wasn't as what we have in Ireland. It's a black pudding, which is a, a blood cake, which is something I really enjoy. But uh, it probably wasn't anything like that. But wherever it was, it was something that Jews considered unclean, something that defiled them, something which they should not have been sitting around a table to enjoy. And Peter had defiled himself, in their opinion. So Peter returns to Jerusalem, and he finds himself having to answer all these questions for his actions. He explains what happens, what happened, everything. And he concludes in verse 17 then, just simply, if God had given them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? The church in Jerusalem, they find themselves in a very similar position to the Jerusalem politicians that gave them grief and trouble a few chapters earlier. In chapter 4, after Peter and John are, are roughed up a little bit by the Jerusalem authorities for preaching the gospel about the resurrection of Jesus, they're charged not to speak again. There was a cripple who came to faith. There were people in society whose lives were being transformed. But Peter said, and John verse 19 of chapter 4, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to listen to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help but speak about what we have seen and heard. In chapter 5, the apostles were rounded up again and thrown into prison, and they ended up standing before the whole Jerusalem council of politicians and leaders, and again, they're charged to stop preaching this message that's transforming people's lives about Jesus. Peter and the apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. And after much debate in those chapters, a wise old Pharisee named Gamaliel, one of the better ones, he stands up and he gives this advice. In the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. So there's been this ongoing conversation, really a debate between Peter and the apostles and the Jerusalem Sanhedrin, that's the council, uh, about uh, preaching the gospel. And, and thankfully, they get some freedom where they're allowed to engage. But here, now, they stand before the Jerusalem church. And in a similar way, they find themselves before the church in a similar predicament. The church has its own little prejudices, in danger of standing in God's way 
and the progress of his kingdom mission to reach out to other peoples that they didn't care about with the good news of Jesus Christ. The unbelieving Sanhedrin previously protested against the apostles because they didn't like how it changed people's lives. People they thought were born into certain conditions because somehow they sinned or they deserved it. Jesus gave grace for everyone. And Jesus does transform lives. You see, there's nothing challenging or disturbing about a message that doesn't transform or change us, is there? In Ireland, we could say, I could say that I, at the bottom of my garden, Tinkerbell lives, the fairy. And people quite commonly, well, not commonly, but a number of people do believe in fairies in Ireland. And they could say, I, I leave out food for the fairies, and I, I go and talk to the fairies, and the fairies bring me messages, and they bring me good luck. And, and you know, if you said that, people would say, well, that's great. That's good for you. That's really interesting. And, and how long have you done that for? And tell me a bit more about it. But if you said, you know, I believe in Jesus and he's changed my life, you don't get the same reaction because Jesus changes people and he transforms lives. And we know that we need him because we're broken and he is our savior. And the gospel that the apostles preached clearly did that and it upset people. And now the Jewish Jerusalem church was offended really for the exact same reasons as the council had been some chapters before. They didn't like Peter associating and sharing the message with other peoples outside of their group and seeing them as equals, these Gentiles, these non-Jews. The church was less prejudiced than the Jewish culture and council, but they were still prejudiced. Likewise, in every place on the face of the earth, the church today, please God and thank God, has less sin, but it still has sin. And as individuals, we all sin. Problems that we see outside in the world, we will also find in the church. But the big difference has to be that when sin, whether it's prejudice or favoritism or hypocrisy or unfaithfulness or whatever it might be, when those things are brought to light, that it isn't denied that it isn't hushed up or swept under the carpet. But there's a clear resolve to change through the help of Jesus Christ, to move forward, to seek forgiveness, to set things right for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. And so we see in verse 18 here, when they heard this, they had no further objections and they praised God saying, so then, even to the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life such clear evidence of God's grace at work. And of course, it didn't mean that this would be the, the last time that the Jerusalem church would struggle and wrestle with the reality that God had brought non-Jews into their church, into the kingdom of Christ, but this was no small step for any Jew to make. And the fact that they praised God about it, the salvation of Cornelius, a Roman centurion, is a real demonstration that they had taken to heart the teaching of Jesus to love your enemies, to pray for your persecutors. It's evidence of God's transforming grace at work here. And we see grace in, in Peter's life too. They've pointed the finger at him. They've accused him before he even got the chance to defend himself. And he doesn't say, how dare you judge me? I'm the apostle Peter. No. He just graciously takes the time to explain it to them, doesn't he? 
And without even accusing them of anything, he just speaks from his own heart. And he says, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? Let's pray that we can be so graceful when we find ourselves accused. So we have Jerusalem acknowledges the Gentiles in verses 1 to 18. And then secondly, Antioch receives the gospel in verse 19 to 21. Now, God in his, his patience and His grace, He gives Peter this vision that we heard about, and then we see the salvation of Cornelius as a kind of a soft introduction to non-Jewish believers in the Jewish Christian church. Antioch, then, is where the floodgates really begin to open. Again, though, too, God in His wisdom and patience probably thought it was best that this large conversion of Gentiles, non-Jews, took place some distance away well outside of Jewish territory, so that there wasn't the same day-to-day -day interaction, so that they over overcome some of those difficulties and cultural frictions and all the rest. That would come later in the book of Acts. Now, it's hard to know this city of Antioch, how big the church was exactly. Luke doesn't give us numbers. He just says in verse 21 that it was a great number of people that came to the Lord. Who knows that the city itself was the third largest in the Greco-Roman world with a population of half a million people. It was built in a grid system, a little bit like you have here uh, with the city blocks. And it was really the, the commercial and the economic capital of the Roman East. It was rich. It was international. It was stylish. And if any of you are into Lego and you like to be a master builder, you can think of Herod the Great he was the master builder of the time, and he even provided these great colonnades, these decorative pillars that lined the main street on Antioch, and he paved the street itself with a kind of polished stone. It was an impressive city. Now, Antioch did have a large enough Jewish community. Uh, almost from the city's beginnings in 300 BC, Jewish colonists moved there. And at this stage in Acts, in, Acts, uh, in the mid-40s, there's a large number of converts to Judaism. Uh, we call them proselytes. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, the Jerusalem church is struggling with a bit of inequality between the, the, the Jewish widows and the Jewish Greek widows. And so we see these seven uh, appointees of the deacons. And one of them, Luke tells us, was a man called Nicholas, who was a convert to Judaism from Antioch. Though despite the Jewish influence, Antioch was very much a Gentile city. It was cosmopolitan, meaning it was a, a city of the world. It had an international reputation for liberation, moral liberation. A bit like Corinth, not Corinth you have here, but Corinth in the New Testament. And the main religion of sorts was a kind of a pagan fertility cult. Uh, officially the Greek gods of Artemis and Apollo, but it was really more influenced by the Syrian worship of Ashtart. And the clue is in the name if you wonder what that's like, Ashtart, because she was a bit of a tart. Now, one Roman critic from the time writes that the sewage of the Syrian Orantes has for a long time been discharging itself into the Tiber, meaning that all the filth of the world ends up washing up in Antioch because it was a bit of a moral cesspit. But the arrival of Christianity would mark a new chapter in the life of of this city. Verse 19 takes us in a little bit of a throwback to Acts chapter 8. This man called Stephen, he was a, a, a Greek Jew, had just been martyred. 
uh, mostly because of the, the Jewish Greek party who were more Jewish than the Jews themselves. Then there was this, this persecution that arose and, and the G- Greek Jewish Christians then were scattered and they were on the run as refugees, mostly going back to their home cities beyond Judea. But while traveling, they were also spreading the gospel of Jesus along the way, just like Philip in Acts chapter 8. And some of these men, verse 20, some of them, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, however, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. And the Lord's hand was on them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. These Greeks from verse 20, they weren't Jewish Greeks. Verse 19 makes that obvious. These are people who were sacrificing their goats and bulls in the temple of Apollo and paying tribute to Ashtart through her temple prostitutes, often women who were caught in adultery or else trafficked from some other defeated land. But as Paul writes in Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone that believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile, the Greek. So here, We have these unnamed evangelists from Cyprus and Cyrene recognizing the transformative power of the gospel, deciding to do something a little bit different, perhaps a little controversial among their peers, and share the gospel with these Gentiles. Gentiles, these non-Jews, were not familiar with the title Messiah. They hadn't seen the fiddler on the roof. They hadn't seen the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. They didn't know the story of Genesis. They had their own equivalent to the Ten Commandments. But although, despite that, some aspects of their sacrificial system were similar. They didn't have the clarity of the Jewish prophets, as Jesus explains to the woman at the well. We Jews know where salvation comes from, but like all the world, like every single person, they did understand sin. All the world understands and believes in sin. Even Buddhism, which claims to have absolutely no concept of sin, has five deadly sins, which will apparently send you to hell. Killing your father, killing your mother, killing an enlightened one, injuring a Buddha, or wait for it, the last one, starting an argument in a monastery. All deadly sins. Even without an explicit list of what these people from Antioch considered to be sins, they clearly had sins. Like every person, we know we're not the people that we should be. And that's a problem. And these people had sacrifice because they knew about sin. And the whole purpose of sacrifice is to atone for sin or appease the spirits or appease the gods. And since they also clearly understood sacrifice, it follows then that they understood forgiveness and redemption. So what did these unnamed evangelists share with these people? who knew very little about the Old Testament and the Jewish faith. They told them that the creator of all, the Lord God, who created everything, came down into this world, the Son of God, to offer himself out of his love as a sacrifice for us because we're lost and broken and we can't do it ourselves. That's all they shared. You know, sometimes we think the gospel is difficult to share. Maybe you think that you're not quite equipped. 
or that you don't have all the answered answers. You don't need all the answers. Here we have these unnamed evangelists on the run basically as refugees, sharing the gospel with people from alien cultures. And through the Lord's power and by his hand, they saw many people coming to saving faith in Jesus Christ, saved from destruction and brought to forgiveness. You know, one of my memories of Dublin Christian Mission from a few years ago, I just worked there during the summer and we took uh, some boys out of the city from maybe some more troubled backgrounds and spent some time camping with them and were just role models to them and shared the gospel with them. We, we spent some time and, and my friend and Deco, uh, Declan, were doing a little quiet time and Deco opens up the New Testament and he explains to the boys, you know, you don't need a priest. You don't need some kind of a religious expert to know Jesus. It helps to have teachers. But you can read the New Testament. You can read the gospel and understand for yourself that Jesus came for you and you can know him personally. And he encouraged them to, to read it for themselves. And one of the lads just says, you know what, Deco? I think that in a hundred years, you'll be in the Bible. And it would just melt your heart. Now, the same boy was also convinced that his dead goldfish that he got, if he left it out overnight in salt, that it would revive the next day. But that's a different story. Back to Deco. Deco's name won't be in the Bible for obvious reasons. Because there's nothing that can be added. It's complete. But I was reminded of the story when I heard of these unnamed evangelists sharing with unknown people. They didn't get their names in the Bible. Even though by God's hand they started the first non-Jewish church. You know, as you go out with that simple and clear message that Jesus saves, that he is Lord, that he died and rose again and he is coming back, don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Because however insignificant you might feel, through the Lord's hand and power, he can do mighty things. So we saw Jerusalem acknowledges the Gentiles in verses 1 to 8. Then Antioch receives the gospel in verses 19 to 21. And finally then, with this little section, verses 22 to 30, of relationship through mission. In England, possibly around 1775, a young man named William Carey expressed a desire for the church to reach the heathen throughout the world. One of the older leaders gave him a quick reply. Young man, sit down. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he will do so without your aid or mine. Now, thankfully, William Carey went on to join the Baptists and uh, found himself a pioneer missionary in Calcutta in India. And he went other, on to encourage others down the same path and to be to missionaries. And historians sometimes refer to him as the father of modern mission. Now, the Baptist connection is hardly important I just mention it to remind us that historically Baptists have always been Bible-thumping missionaries. But what is important is that William Carey, who was originally shut down by this older man for having a desire to reach the heathen with the gospel, clearly wasn't put off in his desire. He wasn't insubordinate. He still received guidance. But he continued on with that desire to reach the heathen. You see, aside from the missionary message itself, you know, which we have to understand and be clear about, the most important thing has to be the missionary's relationship with the people. 
that the missionary has a love for the people enough to reach out to them with the gospel. They must have a desire for these heathens, these pagans, these barbarians, these savages, ultimately these human beings created in God's image. They must have a burning desire for these people to come to Christ and know his love and forgiveness and salvation. And the church in Antioch, they had that desire to see, or sorry, in Jerusalem, they had that desire to see more people from Antioch reach with the gospel as well as extend this hand of fellowship to them as their new brothers in Christ. They sent Barnabas down as, as a choice to extend this, this fellowship. He was the ideal choice, a man who was, got the nickname Son of Encouragement. And uh, he see, we see about him in verse 24, it tells us that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. He had a love for the lost, a love for the broken, a love for those who were messed up. We see here that he brings Saul, a.k.a. Paul, back in, and he, he then finds his feet and gets involved in this new church plant, this Gentile, non-Jewish church. And verse 26 gives us an idea of what they taught and what this new community was about and the identifying name which has lasted ever since. The disciples were first called Christians at Antioch a new nickname that the world gave them. A bit like Jesus freak or born again or in any of the other terms. It wasn't a new gospel, not at all, but it certainly was new to the communities around them and the conscious world. Because starting at Antioch, this was now a message that was clearly for all peoples and all people groups. Now, verse 27 to 30 about the famine relief might seem like an ad, a strange add-in or tag-on at the end of this chapter. Obviously, it's historically accurate. Luke is an excellent historian. During the reign of Claudius, it was marked by a number of bad years of harvest, particularly in Judea, during the years of AD 45 to 48. But it sits here as this perfect conclusion to a section which is a theme of relationship between churches and mission across cultures. Jerusalem sends Barnabas. The church in Antioch is encouraged. Later, verse 28, Agabus the prophet from Jerusalem comes to Antioch and prophesies about the famine. Antioch then sends Saul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem with a collection to help the Christians in Judea who were most affected. This chapter starts with Jews struggling with the concept of eating Gentile food. The chapter ends with Gentiles feeding Jews. And it's all possible because of Jesus. The power of the gospel to reconcile people who would otherwise have absolutely nothing to do with each other. Now, later at the brown bag lunch, I'm going to share with you about the, the work in y'all, a bit about the culture, a bit about the church, and, and some of it will probably seem quite alien, some of it foreign, so it'll be good to have a few questions for things that I've totally overlooked. But you know, as we've come here, one of the most wonderful things has been able to get to know many of you in the church, spend time with you, do normal things together, exciting things, and worship together as a church family. Some of you said, welcome to hell because of the weather. But you know, honestly, this has been such a little taste of heaven because we know that despite the geographical differences and all the rest, that we are one in Jesus Christ. We worship the same God. We have the same Savior. And when we get to heaven, 
we will meet other saints that have been impacted because of our love for each other and our partnership in the gospel. Praise God for that. Amen. Thank you, Mike. I'm going to pray. Father, we praise you and we thank you for your love for us. We thank you for Jesus Christ, that whole definition of love, that he was sacrificed for us so that we could know what it is to have peace and forgiveness and an end to striving against ourselves and our sin and all the brokenness in the world. And Father, we pray that you would continue to change each and every one of us to make us more into the likeness of Jesus Christ. And that as we go out with that message, that we would see other lives transformed and rescued and redeemed and restored through Jesus and his gospel. We pray this in his precious name. Amen.